Alright, welcome to Letter to the Americans. I believe this is going to be episode... I don't even know anymore. I think it's episode 7. Hmm. <laughs> no, I think it's episode 6, but it'll be for week 7. Anyway, it's not like they pay me to keep track of this kind of thing. Um, this week's reading comes from the book The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. I've actually had the opportunity to meet N.T. Wright. I interacted with him at a conference in, I think, September of 2019, I want to say. So if you listen to the end, I'll, I'll tell a, uh, well, I don't know if it's a fun story. It's just a story about the time that I met N.T. Wright. Anyway. <clears throat> it was the time in which the strange power called Sin, the dark force unleashed by human idolatry, was doing its worst precisely in the people of God. God's people were captive, enslaved to Babylon and its successors, to the dark powers that stood behind them. What God was doing through the Torah in Israel was to gather sin together into one place so that it could, it could then be condemned. If anywhere in the whole New Testament teaches an explicit doctrine of penal substitution, this is it. But it falls within the narrative not of a works contract, not of an angry God determined to punish someone, not of going to heaven but of God's vocational covenant with Israel and through Israel, the vocation that focused on the Messiah himself and then opened out at last into a genuinely human existence. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. So therefore, there is no condemnation for those in the Messiah Jesus. Why not? Because the law of the spirit of life in the Messiah, Jesus, released you from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and is a sin offering, and right there in the flesh he condemned sin. This was an order that the right and proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us, as we live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This statement looks back at last to Romans 2, 1-11, where Paul had warned about the condemnation that would fall on evildoers. He has already said that those in the Messiah have the verdict pronounced over them. The verdict, that is, of righteous, or in the right. He has already promised that those who are thus declared to be in the right by his blood will be rescued from the wrath that is still to come. Now we see what he means. There is no condemnation for those in the Messiah, because God condemns sin right there in the flesh. The punishment has been meted out. But the punishment is on sin itself, the combined, accumulated, and personified force that has wreaked such havoc in the world and in human lives. Here is a point, a point that must be noted most carefully. Paul does not say that God punished Jesus. He declares that God punished sin in the flesh of Jesus. Now, to be sure, the crucifixion was no less terrible an event because, with theological hindsight, the apostle could see that what was being punished was sin itself rather than Jesus himself. The physical, mental, and spiritual agony that Jesus went through on that terrible day was not alleviated in any way. But theologically speaking, and with regard to the implications that run through many aspects of church life, teaching, and practice, it makes all the difference. The death of Jesus seen in this light is certainly penal. It has to do with the punishment on sin, not, to say it again, on Jesus. But it is punishment nonetheless. Equally, it is certainly substitutionary. God condemns sin in the flesh of the Messiah, and therefore sinners who are in the Messiah are not condemned. The one dies, and the many do not. All those narrative fragments we saw in Luke and John come into their own. This man has done nothing wrong. Let one man die for the people, rather than the whole nation being wiped out. But this substitution finds its true meaning not within the normal works contract, but within the God and Israel narrative, the vocational narrative, 
the story in accordance with the Bible. Once we rescue this substitution from its pagan captivity, it can resume its rightful place at the heart of the Jewish and then the Messianic narrative, the story through which, in 8.4 as elsewhere, humans are rescued not so that they can go to heaven, but so that the right and proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us, as we live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Humans are rescued in order to be glorified, that is, that they may resume the genuine human existence, bearing the divine image, reflecting God's wisdom and love into the world. What Paul has done is to locate the dealing with sin within the larger Kingdom of God narrative, just as, in their own way, the Gospels did. The new Passover, rescue from the enslaving power, is accomplished by dealing with sins, only now with sins growing to their full extent as sin with a capital S, the two stories finally fuse together into one. To put it another way, Paul has told the long, sad story of Israel and arrived at last at the slavery of exile as in Deuteronomy 28. Israel needed a fresh start, such as is described in Deuteronomy 30, which Paul quotes in exactly this sense in Romans 10. But for that, as the prophets insisted, Israel's sins needed to be dealt with so that exile could be undone. Paul has now shown, through the complex but carefully consistent narrative he has told, how this joins up with the larger expectation of the new exodus. At the heart of this conjoined double story, he has told the story of the Messiah, the one who represents Israel and who therefore becomes the place where sin does its worst. Again, this resonates with the narrative of the four Gospels, in which, as we saw, evil of every sort was building up like a thunderstorm as Jesus went about announcing the kingdom. It gathered itself together and finally unleashed its full fury upon him. That is the story the Gospels were telling. It is the story behind the use of Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4. It is the story Paul has now encapsulated in this powerful and crucial little statement in Romans chapter 8. In telling the story this way, Paul has resolutely, resolutely located the deepest meaning of the cross within Israel's narrative. That is where it should remain. Take it out of that story, as I have argued already, and we will tell instead a quasi-pagan story separating the death of Jesus from the love of the Creator God. That has happened often enough, despite the fact that here Paul explicitly rules it out. It was, he insists, God's purpose to allow the Torah to heap up sin in this way. It was God's Son, his own second self, who was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. It was God's love that was demonstrated in action, as Paul insisted in 5.8 and reaffirms in 8.31-39. It is, after all, no demonstration of love if I send someone else to do the necessary but horrible task in my place. That would demonstrate, if anything, a callous or even cynical manipulation. For the death of Jesus to be an expression, the ultimate expression of the divine love, that covenant love that, as we saw, lay at the heart of so many ancient Israelite expressions of hope for covenant renewal and rescue, we would need to say, and Paul does say, that in the sending of the Son, the Creator and Covenant God is sending his own very self. Ultimately, we have to choose between a proto-Trinitarian framework for understanding Paul's view of Jesus' death and a quasi-pagan one. The Church has often found itself lapsing into the latter. Romans brings us sharply back to the former. Even when theologians and preachers have seen this danger and have insisted that what was achieved on the cross was the direct result of the Father's love, when the goal is platonized into going to heaven and the human role is moralized, good and bad behavior, the structure of the implicit story will still run in the wrong direction. Two other elements of this passage make their distinctive contributions. First, Paul describes Jesus' death as a sin offering. This may seem strange. Why mention this particular sacrifice, one of many different sacrifices in Leviticus and Numbers, at this moment? It would be a mistake, as I hinted earlier, to think that the animal presented as a sin offering was being punished for the sins of the worshipper. That is not the point. 
The point is that in the Bible, the sin offering is, again and again, the particular sacrifice that has to do with sins that the Israelite performed, either unwillingly, not intending to do them, or unwittingly, intending to do them but not realizing that they were sinful. And Paul has analyzed the actions of the I in chapter 7, verses 13 through 20 in such a way as to place Israel under the Torah in exactly that position. I don't understand what I do, in verse 15, is literally, I do not know what I am doing. This is unwitting sin, the sin of ignorance. I end up doing the evil thing I don't want to do, in verse 20. This is the unwilling sin. The remedy is suited exactly to the problem. The forgiveness of sins, the major return from exile theme in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, is now available. The exile is over. The slave master's power is broken. The covenant is renewed in and through Israel's Messiah. With that, there is the assurance that the powers themselves are defeated, because sin, the very foundation of their power, has been condemned. That is why, second, the result is not that sinners are free to go to heaven, but that they are free for the true human vocation, the royal priesthood in all its variations. It is when humans take up their proper vocation, redeemed by the Messiah and indwelt by the Spirit, that the powers find they are starved of their oxygen. This is what must have, this is what much of the rest of Romans 8 is about, starting with the end of verse 4, as we live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This points ahead to the resurrection itself, to the life of taking responsibility for one's own body and its actions, and to the vocation to suffer and so to share the glory of the Messiah, that is, his strange, suffering, but powerful rule over the world. This leads to the ultimate new creation, when the present creation, groaning in travail, will be set free from its slavery to corruption and decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified, 8.23. That is the ultimate glory, the royal role for which humans were made, and for which, as in 5.17, they are redeemed. They are justified in order to be justice-bringers. This is the result of the revolution accomplished on the cross. The work of the cross is not designed to rescue human humans from creation, but to rescue them for creation. If we told the story that way, all kinds of problems would either be solved or at least appear in a new light. The point then extends also to the priestly work of intercession. Humans who are redeemed through the Messiah and indwelt by the Spirit discover that, in the pain of ignorance about what to pray for, that same Spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, 8.26. But God, the searcher of hearts, knows what the Spirit is thinking, because the Spirit is pleading for God's people according to God's will, 8.27. And so it goes on to the final statement of assurance. Nothing can separate us from the love of God revealed in the death of the Messiah. I have stressed that here as elsewhere, the picture only makes sense if we take the view that all the early Christians shared that the living God of Israel was personally present in and as Jesus himself. This poses for later thinkers an obvious problem. How could God, as it were, be split into two? The first Christians do not seem to have seen it like that nor did they worry particularly about how to say what, it, what had to be said. They drew on various Jewish models already in use to talk about how the one God, utterly beyond and above the world he had made, was nevertheless present and active within it. This, after all, is how Israel's scriptures speak of Israel's God. For Israel, of course, this way of thinking about God was focused in the temple, in particular, and also in Torah itself. Discussions of Jesus and his identity have returned in our own day to the ancient Jewish temple theology to discover all kinds of possibilities that had remained opaque when the discussion was stuck in non-Jewish categories. The temple was, after all, the place where heaven and earth met. Why not say that one particular person might be the ultimate example of the same phenomenon, a person equally at home in both dimensions? 
The Torah was the revealed will of the transcendent God for his covenant people. Why not say that one particular person might finally embody the divine will? In some Jewish thought, these beliefs were already combined in the idea of wisdom, the divine blueprint for humankind, of which David's son Solomon was seen as the primary exponent. When Paul speaks of God sending the Son, he is bringing together two strands of Jewish thought in particular. First, the idea of God sending the divine wisdom into the world, and specifically into the temple. Second, the idea of the Father and the Son, which goes back to the language used of the Davidic Messiah in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, and elsewhere. As the argument of Romans 8 develops, all these concepts are firmly in play. It is the messianic identity and glory of Jesus that is shared with his followers in 8, 17-25. When Paul speaks about the Spirit being present with God's peop- with Jesus' people, indwelling them and leading them to their promised inheritance, the language he uses in the implicit story he is telling remind us of the pillar of cloud and fire in the original Exodus. There is a deep, incipient Trinitarian thought here, firmly rooted in the traditions of Israel. That larger conception of Israel's God provides the context within which everything Paul wants to say about the death of Jesus can be said, clearly and without pagan distortion. This, is, this opens up a possibility to look back to the Gospels for a moment for understanding one of the most perplexing moments in the whole New Testament portrayal of Jesus' death, the cry of dereliction on the cross. The more strongly we affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, both Mark and Matthew, who report the cry, clearly believe that Jesus is the living embodiment of Israel's God, the harder it all seems to become. But the picture of God that emerges from, from Romans 8 suggests another way of seeing things. Paul's remarkable description of prayer in Romans 8, 26 and 27 indicates that there are times when we don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but that same spirit pleads on our behalf, with groanings too deep for words. At that point, as we noted a moment ago, Paul declares that God, the searcher of hearts, knows what the spirit is thinking. The Spirit, as we just saw, is taking the role in this passage that in the Exodus narrative belongs to the glorious divine presence. There is, in other words, no question that for Paul the Spirit is, in later language, fully divine. We thus have here a conversation going on between the Spirit, groaning with sighs too deep for words, and the heart-searcher himself. The two are deeply in tune with one another, but the Spirit is groaning like a woman in labor. Does this mean a split within the Trinity? Certainly not. And if Paul can say that about the Father and the Spirit, through whose dialogue the church is conformed to the image of the Son, why should Matthew and Mark not say something very similar about the Father and the Son? I suspect, in fact, that we have been misled by the easy assumption that while the Son and perhaps the Spirit are out and about on their various tasks, the Father is, as it were, waiting back at the office, calmly in charge of the world. In a sense, that may be true. But if the Christology of the New Testament means anything, it means that we only learn the deepest truths about God himself by looking at Jesus. In Philippians 2, we discover that the life of self-abandonment and humility to which the Son devoted himself was not undertaken despite the fact that he was in the form of God, but precisely because he was in the form of God. In Colossians 1.15, the Messiah is the image of the invisible God. In John 1.18, he is the one who makes known the God who cannot otherwise be seen. In Mark 10, Jesus insists that the power that overcomes the powers is the power of self-giving love. All these, it seems, converge in the actual events. So what if it were true after all? What if the Creator, all along, had made the world out of overflowing, generous love, so that the overflowing, self-sacrificial love of the Son going to the cross was indeed the accurate and precise self-expression of the love of God for a world radically out of joint? 
Would it not then make sense to say that, just as the wordless groanings of the Spirit in Romans 8, 26 and 27 are part of what it means to be God, to be both present in the depths of the world's pain and transcendent over it, but searching all hearts, so the cry of dereliction was itself part of what it meant to be God, to be the God of generous love. Might that not enable us to give an account of the Trinity as overflowing creative love? No doubt this, like all attempts to speak wisely and truly about God, will fall short of the reality. But once we allow Paul's view of the divine presence and action in the world to help us shape our larger view, I think the possibility is at least open. If reading the Gospels for all their worth can help us with our reading of Paul, and this is what I have tried to make happen in this book, perhaps at this point at least, Paul can help us with our reading of one of the hardest sayings in the Gospels. Music